where's where's the latest rick warren book where's where's the book that just talks about football and jesus Welcome back to the Misfits Theology Podcast. Hey guys, this is Gabriel Gordon on the Misfits Theology Podcast. And today is a very special episode. Why is it a very special episode? Well, it's a super fantastic episode, special episode today, because it is the official God Speaks book launch. Now, if you didn't know, if you didn't know, I wrote a second book. My first book came out a couple years ago, and I recently just wrote a second book, which, uh, as of this recording, will be released in about a month or so. So I'm super excited. This is, again, our official book launch. And so we're going to be talking about the book. We have some local beers we're going to be drinking. We're going to get into that. Uh, We also have a local artist whose song we're going to play um, uh, probably at the end of the episode. It might end up in the middle. We'll see what happens in the editing process. Anyway, I'm super excited. So if you haven't met Adam Datchill, he's been on the podcast a few times. He's a friend of mine from seminary. He was deeply involved with my book in the writing process. You could say my book had an affair with him. Uh, That's how, that's how deeply involved he was in the sheets with my book as it was being going through the editing process. And he was in all the conversations that were happening while uh, even before the book, the, when, when the ideas were first uh, coming up for the book, he was even in those conversations uh, in our first year of seminary. And as I started to write, he was in all those conversations as well. So, so Adam's the dude. So Adam, say hi to the people. Hey, everyone. This is awesome. I've been, uh, I've been waiting for this day. I'm super pumped. I never sound super pumped, but I'm super pumped because I'm not as crazy as Gabe. I'm, I'm super pumped too. I have the same Irish book as Captain Jack Sparrow and joker so if you can imagine those two publishing a book and doing a podcast episode for a very special official book launch episode you there you go you can imagine it okay so we're going to start off 
with beer, beer, beer. It's the craft beer hour with Gabriel Gordon and Adam Datcher, where they sip on some sweet, sweet adult libations and talk about theology. Yeah. Adam, why don't you go first? What are you drinking? And is it local? Because if it's not local, you're not a hipster and you have to, we have to kill you. Yeah. um, What I'm drinking is not local at all, nor is it beer, which I know goes against everything that Gabe just said. My drink comes from across the pond. I am drinking a two fingers so far of Cull Ela Scotch. It's an Isley from obviously from Scotland. Scotch, Scotch, Scotch. Down, down it goes. Down in my belly. I love Scotch. For copyright reasons, we have to mention that that's from Anchorman. Um. (laughs) Yeah. So, okay. I. Do you want me to? Do you want me to, to go ahead and give the explanation right now as to why I'm drinking beer? Or do you want to, why, why I'm why, not drinking why, beer? Why you're committing the heresy of not drinking beer during the craft beer hour? Well, sure. Tell sure. us. Explain. You know. So I normally drink IPAs. It's about the only kind of beer I thoroughly enjoy, except for like, I don't know, some real like dense, like coffee stout kind of, kind of beverages. But IPAs are basically all I've drank probably for the last... Oh, I don't know, like three years. It's probably why I moved to the West Coast a year ago. But the problem with me and beer is when I drink beer, my tummy hurts. And tum, 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 yeah, tum. but I, I've, I've sucked it up no matter where I've been. And I've all got always gotten IPAs because the hoppiness. I just love hops. I love the smell of hops. I love the taste of hops. Double, triple IPAs, imperial IPAs. All Quadruple imperial quad, IPAs. Quad hops. And so like all this time, I would just like suck up the tummy ache because I love IPAs. Well, a couple weeks ago, I was perusing Whole Foods, like, you know, perusing the good millennial that I am. And I, uh, I came across this stuff called Hop Tea. Here's the plug, Hoplark. If you want to sponsor this episode, here it is. They have, they have like four different varieties. I found one. It's called like the really hoppy one, but it is... Trying to, I'm trying to remember. I think it's made with uh, not citra hops. I can't remember what kind of hops it's made with and black tea. And you crack the thing open. It cracks open like an IPA. You pour it into a glass. It pours like an IPA. It looks like an IPA. It smells like an IPA. And after about the second sip, you get used to the tea background instead of the beer background. And it just tastes like IPA hoppy goodness and so there's no alcohol no calories it is tea and hops and that is it and i have ended my relationship with beer as far as i know because of that but tonight since we're celebrating this amazing book that's coming out i decided i still needed a beverage and so i was gifted this amazing bottle of a 12 year Isley and for, for graduating. And uh, I'm uh, graduated by the way, everybody from his master's degree. So round of applause. applause. So I was gifted this bottle and uh, I kind of use it for special occasions because it's a, it's a nice bottle of scotch. This is the uh, one of the best bottles of scotch for under a hundred dollars you could buy, which if you know anything about scotch gets pretty pricey, the better it gets. So there you go. There's another plug. So 
if y'all are gonna have over... to put both of those in the show notes so if people actually want to go out and try these they can right yeah, yeah. and so. and you know if if you folks good folks across the pond another uh there's another sponsor plug yeah Bef- oh. before we get to my beer um i do quickly want to say we'll need to toast i know we're going to do this through zoom but i came up with a new word and it's a toasting word it's it's used in toasting ceremonies or when you clink your your glass of beer or your glass of scotch or whatever it is together this this is the word you use and it's it's goo balen g-o-o-b-a-l-e-n goo balen so you go so let's 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 toast we're, practice. Quick. we're practicing then, yeah 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 and then i'll explain what it means so goo balen goo balen uh, there we go Clink. yeah uh, we, I, I don't think that was we got to be more enthusiastic. It's like, Gubalin! yeah, there we go. Okay. Like, you know, cool. So, so Gubalin comes from the word goo, which I made up and the word ballin, which I also made up. And goo, Wait, did you, did you really make up the word ballin? It's B-A-L-E-N, ballin. Not like, oh, okay. Not All like, right. oh, I'm ballin. Gotcha, like, gotcha, gotcha. Ballin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ballin. Yeah. It's, it's, it's different. So, so goo, uh, uh, is the word in, in my language that means uh, to uh, um, to relish in, in, in the triune life. Okay, something like that doesn't translate perfectly. And then and then balin uh, means to accept and enjoy the goodness of God's physical creation. So when you put those two together, gubalin means to relish and enjoy. Uh, uh, the 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 triune life of God through experiencing and enjoying the goodness of God's physical creation. So, there you go. Google that's, uh, that's worthy of a toast. It is, and it's an anti-gnostic statement. It's an affirmation yeah. of the goodness of creation rather than its denial. Yeah. Um. So, I'm drinking a beer. So I moved recently uh, to Grand Junction, Colorado, and uh, um, Adams and Little Rock. Arkansas now, if you want to stalk us. And in Grand Junction, Colorado, it's on the western half of the state. It's almost in Utah. We're about 45, 30 minutes uh, east of the Utah border. And so I went to Ramble Vine, which is a uh, um, brewery that opened up within the last, I don't even know if it's a year old. I think it opened up during COVID. But uh, I'm drinking the God Hammer. It's called the God Hammer. Oh, sorry. Burps from the beer. It's called the God Hammer, and it's a Norwegian red ale, 6.5%. I don't know if you see that. 6.5. So don't drink if you're pregnant, ladies. Um, Surgeon General warns it. So that's what I'm drinking. It's a, it's a nice beer. It's good. Maybe not as good as your scotch, but it's not scotch. So That's that's true. Beer is not scotch. Yeah, uh, so um, now the next part of this is uh, we're oh, wait, in now. Oh, wait, wait. It's time for a commercial break. So, shout out to our sponsors here. How much oats are actually in your oatmeal? I'm going to find out tonight after these commercial messages. Are you struggling to develop a rock-solid theological doctrine for biblical inspiration? Do you cry yourself to sleep because of your less-than-satisfactory flaccid knowledge? Then you need Gabriel Gordon's new book about biblical inspiration, Guaranteed to make you theologically solid. 
you're going to knock her socks off. Gordon's book is not responsible for the following symptoms. Failure to obtain an A in an economic class. Failure to court the woman or man of your dreams. Failure to bake a cake like they do on the Great British Breaking Show. A British accent, an Irish accent, certainly not an Oklahoman accent. God, no, we're not responsible for your tingling sensations you feel every time you hear the name Texas. Extra sensitive extremities, loss of hearing, taste, or smell. God Speaks is not a cure for COVID. That failed trip you took to Mexico because you got on the wrong flight and then ended up back in Mexico and then somehow in Dubai and any other things you might think of. And we're back. Thank you to our sponsors. Yeah, thanks guys. So <laughs> go by God speaks. Oh man. Ah, oh, this is awesome. Where where do you want to start with this big this big celebration? We got so much we could talk about. I want to get nerdy and you know dirty and nerdy, nerdy here. And, nerdy. and well, better use protection. I'm shaking my head. That doesn't come through on the mic. Um, the, the, the armor of God, yeah. pervert. Ephesians. <laughs> Gosh, what do you think I'm talking about? Ah, oh, you pervert. Oh. oh, my. My goodness. Anyhow, so we've had a lot of fun with this. I know that, let's see, this goes back a few years. The beginning rumblings of... The beginning. Yes. The, the, the beginning... The beginning rumblings that became parts of this book have been conversations that we have had over the phone, over forum chats and classes, over uh, late nights with drinks at Airbnbs on the West Coast. In Portland, because yeah. we're, we're, so, we're too hipster to, to do that in other places. So definitely in Portland. Yes. So your book, where do you want to start? Well, I don't know, man. Um, there was, I, I was, I was, so my publisher just recently sent me the um, up, most updated interior design. I have to go through it and kind of check if there's any uh, glaring issues. And then it actually will be sent to the, the, the publisher and we'll be off to the races. Um, so I was actually looking through the book and uh, just briefly kind of skimming through uh basically essentially what the book's going to look like how however in pdf form right now and i am kind of blown away that i wrote a book i mean i did write this is my second book but my first book was a collection of essays so it wasn't like one coherent topic it was like 30 different Mm -hmm. topics or whatever but this is like my first book that i've actually written this is on one topic and it's a coherent book from beginning to end so I was really kind of taken back. It just kind of, I think it's starting to settle in that I actually wrote a book. I think it's like 170 pages or something like that. So it's not like a huge book, but um, uh, yeah. So I don't know if we want to talk about, uh, I know you want to talk about bringing the thunder. Is that how you say it? Oh yeah. 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 God bring the thunder. Yeah. And yeah. we're not talking about the thunder like the basketball team from Oklahoma city. So let, wait, I just, I just have to, I have to say something. So the thunder from Oklahoma city, the basketball team is definitely not what we're talking about because they're a bunch of traders and they're traders because they left Seattle. They used to be the Seattle supersonics and they will never be forgiven. This is the one unforgivable sin. So I don't even like sports. My family doesn't like sports. A lot of people in Seattle don't like sports, but guess what? You leave our great city for Oklahoma city. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. No, uh, no, you didn't. So we're not talking about that thunder. So we're talking about thunder in the Bible. So what 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 kind of thunder are we talking about, Adam? That was a very uh great 
comparison there. I, I, I think that was a trigger for me, maybe. Yeah, that came out of nowhere. No, wait, okay, you're going to be able to explain this way better than I will. But this is like number one topic. I thought this was like, I, I mean, I, I was a seminary baby. I was, uh, I, had, I had like prepared myself with getting into some scholarship and stuff before going to seminary. I get to seminary and this weird dude starts talking about God speaking through thunder. And I'm like, not quite sure what he's saying. I, well, I was like, not quite sure what he's saying, but I was intrigued. I'm like, you know, this kind of actually makes a little bit of sense. And this is a topic in the book. And so going back like three years to this conversation, that's still I'm not going to say like still haunts me, but like, <laughs> it's still with me. Uh, Cause it was, it was just one of the, the most fascinating things I've heard about. And then all of a sudden this guy, obviously Gabe here starts talking about participatory revelation and all of these things. And I'm like, dude, I don't even know what these terms are. You're talking about like, say more. And so again, that's a section in the book. I want to talk about it because I think you guys are going to love hearing about it because it's super cool. And I would say that 98, 99.6% of folks out there sitting in church pews, hanging out, even people who are like non-religious, but just like cool stuff. Like, I think this is cool. So let's talk about it. Yeah. So, so, so this, like you mentioned, we had conversations about this in seminary. And when I first heard about this concept, and, and this is uh, what we're talking about generally, is called participatory theologies of revelation. Where I first heard about this was a book in uh, a book called Revelation and Authority by Benjamin Somner, who is a uh, Old Test, what we would call Old Testament, what Jewish people um, call uh, the Hebrew Bible. He's a Old Testament or Hebrew Bible scholar. Uh, Jewish uh, Hebrew Bible scholar at the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York. And this book was absolutely amazing. Um, and it's kind of a mind-blowing book. It's one of those books that is, is, uh, is altering, it, it, it paradigm shifting. And I remember reading, I had at this point, uh, for those who, of you who don't know, the, the, the whole doctrine of inspiration that I'm constructing here in this book is built off of theology called essential kenosis. Maybe we'll explain that a little bit what that is later, but the uncontrolling love of God, God can't, some of the other terms for it. Um, that's associated with a theologian named Thomas J. Ord, who wrote the foreword of the book. Uh, and, and I actually had read his stuff and about the theology of God can't or essential kenosis a number of years ago. And when I came across Benjamin Somner's book, and I read his, his theories of participatory theology, and I, I say his theories, but he traces it back to the Torah itself. Uh, but when I read these, I was like, this is the implication of essential kenosis. This, this is it right here. Um, and so I immediately made that connection. And, and, and that's what chapter three is. Chapter three is, chapter two deals with essential kenosis. What is it? What are some of the historical uh, precedents for it? And then chapter three is, what is the implications of that? And the implications of participatory theologies of revelation. So I go into that, starting to describe what that is. And so the best place, um, when I like to start explaining what essential kenosis, my dog is scratching at the door. Um, when I uh, like to explain essential kenosis, um, I'm gonna get my dog real quick. <laughs> Behave, Mister. Oh, there he is. 
his name's Carl Bart. So um, hopefully he'll behave, you know, Bart wasn't known for behaving. So um, when I like to uh, explain what uh, participatory theologies of revelation are, or bringing the thunder, as you so elegantly said, um, I like to go to Exodus chapter 19, uh, verse 16. So I'm just going to read this and I'll go through verse 19. Uh, This is from the uh, only God ordained uh, uh, translation called the NRSV. Uh, On the morning of the third day, there was thunder. And so setting this up, this is when the Israelites are going approaching Mount Sinai. Moses is walking up on the mountain and God gives him the the commandments. He uh, gives him the law. So the Sinaitic revelation. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning, as well as a thick cloud on the mountain and a blast of a trumpet so loud that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Moses, man, my throat's itchy. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended upon it in fire. The smoke went up like the smoke of a kiln while the whole mountain shook violently. As the blast of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses, and here's the important verse, Moses would speak and God would answer him in thunder. That's right, Bart. Yeah, yeah, there, there you go. Oh, Answering preach, that. preach, Bart. Don't make me shock you, Bart. I have your collar here. That was like as perfect of timing as you could possibly get. Good job, Bart. Um, so Moses would speak and God would answer him in thunder. So what on earth is this thunder? Moses would speak and God would answer him in thunder. Now, the Hebrew word behind this word thunder in our English translation is the, the it's translated transliterated as coal, Q-O-L. And coal can either be translated as voice or as thunder, depending on the context. Now, the NRSV translators have chosen to translate as thunder, and I think I think they're right in this. And there's other re- there's other evidence throughout the Hebrew Bible uh, that gives us uh, good credence for translating this as thunder. So, um, the the implications of this, and this is what Sumner talks about in the book, is the implications of this is that if God spoke, if it's translated, if coal is translated as voice or words then it implies that god spoke to moses on mount sinai in words audible understandable words um i would argue yeah like charlton every, Hest- every- like charlton heston on a mountain or like, like there exactly. can be miracles <laughs> like like that like that style mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. exactly and i would argue even if that's the case um that everything is interpreted so uh, Moses would still be interpreting the words of God. However, if it's if if we were to say that coal should be translated as thunder, then it's a sound that's inherently interpreted. It has to be interpreted. It, it's 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 not audible words. So what Moses receives is not a revelation in and of itself. What he what he produces is a interpretation of the revelation of God. Right. He's still receiving. So like. <clears throat> he's still receiving a revelation. It just isn't the way it is often presented to us in Sunday school churches, etc. Like yeah. he's still receiving a revelation from God. It's just not the 
the booming deep voice is the booming deep voice of thunder. Exactly. So uh, some of the things surrounding this, I don't know if I've already had too much beer. So um, I totally forgot where I was going to go with this. Um, the problem with drinking beer and uh haven't you just uh, like didn't you just crack that thing open like two minutes ago i mean i've oh okay yeah, yeah you you put some, you put some work it. into it so so th this is what i was gonna say i totally remember okay <clears throat> so uh when we're talking about anything in the bible one of the ways that scholars will try to understand what is going on with whatever concept it is whatever theme's going on they compare it to the broader cultural context, literary context of the world surrounding uh, the, the, author, the biblical authors. So uh, one of the primary uh, ways that we understand Israel and their particular biblical text is by looking at uh, other uh, ancient Near Eastern literature that was in close proximity with the Israelite culture and people uh, that also is related. So, for instance, the Ugaritic texts are these texts that we uh, that came out of the ancient Near East. Uh, they were would have been it's a Northwest Semitic language, Ugaritic, and it's related closely related to Hebrew. And so, one of the ways we try to understand different words in the Hebrew language from ancient Israel is by comparing it to the languages that Hebrews related to in in the surrounding country. So. Um, Decades ago, they discovered these Ugaritic texts talking about Baal. So you remember Baal, B-A-A-L, the, the false god that's described in the uh, Old Testament. So there's this particular text that gives us credence for understanding this word, um, coal, as thunder. And here it is. So I'm going to read, this is the English translation. Baalu, or Baal, admits his holy voice. The uh, voice there is translated from uh, uh, translators QL, um, and we'll talk about that in a second. So Baal makes the thunder roll over and over again. So Baal emits his holy voice. Baal makes the thunder roll over and over again. His holy voice causes the earth to tremble. At his thunder, the mountains shake with fear. So in Hebrew poetry, essentially, in a, in a lot of ancient Near Eastern poetry, you have, you have what's called parallel poetry. So the first verse will say something, and the second verse will say basically the same thing, but it in, in different words. So in um, in this, this is parallel. This is uh, parallel uh, poetic parallelism. Um, it, it says Balu emits his holy voice. That's the first verse. Balu emits or it makes the thunder roll over again and again. That's the second verse. So it's the second verse is saying the exact same thing as the first verse, but in different words. Now, the, the, what we translate here in English as voice, um, QL is how it's translated, is a very close cognate of the Hebrew word kol. And what that means is these, that's the essential, that's basically the same word that kol is, but in Ugaritic. So if you took the Ugaritic word QL, and you compared it to the Hebrew word kol, Q-O-L, these are the same, essentially the same words. Um, they're, they're related, uh, they're slightly different, but they mean the same thing, mm -hmm. um, and the language is related. They're, they almost exactly, they almost sound the same. So it's like um, in Arabic, uh, they say, alaikum uh, salam, which means the peace of God be upon you. And in Hebrew, it says shalom. So shalom and salam, are the same word. These are cognates. 
yeah, yeah. Uh, of two different languages that are related, Arabic and Hebrew related. So salam and shalom are cognates and they sound similar, right? Um, and so that's what's going on if here. You, if you with, can't hear through the mic, my cat is making the not thunder in the background right meow. now. Sorry, I, I completely that's derailed okay. you. Okay, so, um, so yeah, so just as shalom and salam are cognates from two related languages, they mean the same thing. They're similar in how they sound. So mm -hmm. QL or kol, Q-O-L in Hebrew and Ugaritic, they're cognates. They sound the same. They're related. They basically mean the same thing. So, uh, so basically in the first verse, Balu emits his holy voice, QL. That's what voice is. And then it says Balu makes thunder roll over again and again. Remember, this is parallel poetry. So the first verse is saying something that's repeated in the second verse in different words. So the fact that it says voice in the first verse and it says thunder in the second verse basically means that the author of this text, this Ugaritic text, is saying that the voice of God is like thunder or is thunder. And you find this in other places, in the, not just in this Ugaritic literature, but you also find it in the Psalms in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old mm. Testament. Um, so Psalms, um, I wish I would have marked these, but you know, I grew up fundamentalist evangelical, so I know the Bible like the back of my hand. So in Psalms 18, um, I'm facing away from the mic, my bad. So in Psalms 18, you know what? You can go look it up. But <clears throat> in the Psalms- is, it, is that like the, is that the, like the Lord thundered in the heavens one? Um. Maybe I'm looking at the okay. So while so I'm quoting from my book right now. So while the whole Psalms 18 is worth reading, as most scholars consider it to be one of the older part of the Hebrew scriptures, and in it we find an abundance of storm imagery attributed to Yahweh, similar to the storm imagery that's attributed to Baal. Uh, for our purposes here, we will look at verse 13. And verse 13 reads, The Lord also thundered in the heavens. And the Most High uttered his voice. So there again is the poetic parallelism that we saw in the Ugaritic text that we also see often in the Hebrew Bible. So we have the first verse is describing the same thing that gets described in the second verse, but in different words. So the fact that it's paralleling thunder with voice means they're equating these terms, thunder and voice. And we see this in lots of parts of, of the Bible. And that gets really interesting because it means that translating thunder in um in exodus 19 or translating coal in exodus 19 is thunder is we have a lot of evidence to suggest that's what it means in context that's how we should translate it which implies this participatory act of theology in which god reveals god's self there's a, a revelation happens and human beings receive that revelation and, 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 and interpret that revelation and what's produced as the interpretation or response to that revelation is scripture um, or tradition. So, um, and what's really interesting, and um, tell me if all that, does all that make sense? I mean, yeah, yeah, it makes sense to me. We've had this conversation before, though. But well, yeah, do you think like, it makes sense to everyone else. Yeah, no, I think it does. I'll let you continue, and then I'll, I'll kind of go, go off on why I think it's so cool, really. Yeah. Like, <laughs> But I'll, you had a train of thought going, so I don't want to break yeah, that. Yeah, I did. So, so what's really cool, we just don't see this in the Old Testament. Now, Somner doesn't talk about this. Um, 
he's a Jewish scholar. He doesn't really, I mean, he probably reads the New Testament at some point for his scholarship, but, but he really doesn't uh, study the New Testament like he does the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. But what I've discovered when doing my kind of my own research is that this idea of voice as thunder in the Old Testament and the Psalms and Exodus gets continued in the first century Judaism. Now, remember, all the New Testament texts, these are all Jewish texts. Maybe one or two aren't, but for the most part, all of these are Jewish texts. So the book of John, the Gospel of John, is a Jewish text. So we would expect that maybe first century Judaism um, and, and actually, let me say this, Somner traces this participatory theology of Revelation, not just for, in the Torah and the Psalms. He traces this from uh, when the Torah and Psalms were written. So 25, you know, 2600, 2700 years ago, however long. Uh, he traces that all the way through Judaism into the medieval rabbinic, the rabbinic period, the medieval period, all the way up to 20th century Judaism. So he he says there's a content, it's something that's continued throughout Judaism for 25 hundred three thousand years so if the new testament is a jewish text in the first century and this idea continues from the torah 2500 years ago 3000 years ago up until 20th century judaism might we find this in first century judaism and 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 and, and such as the gospel of john and i think we do so in verse 27 and in, in chapter 12 it reads now my soul this is jesus now my soul is troubled, and what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this reason that I have come to this very hour. Father, glorify your name, end quote. So Jesus stops talking, and then it, the, the narrator says, then a voice came from heaven. What's that sound like? Sounds like Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Boom. Yeah, brah. The crowd standing there, heard it and it was said that it was thunder let me read that again so mm. a voice came from heaven i have glorified it i will glorify it again and then the narrator says the crowd standing there heard it they heard the voice and said that it was thunder and then others said an angels had spoken an angel had spoken to him uh and then jesus says you know he interprets us this voice has come for your sake not mine <clears throat> a couple things i want to point out there the first thing is that if you notice, some people say it's thunder. Others said it was an angel that spoke. What does that imply? That implies that what the, the God speaking there has to be interpreted. And not only does it have, it, it is inherently interpreted. You have some people that think, oh, that's that's thunder. And other people that think it's an angel. Mm. So it, it shows that when God speaks, when God reveals God's self, it's always interpreted. Okay, th that's the first thing I want to point out. The second thing it, it shows us is that that idea that God's voice is thunder is continued into the new Testament <clears throat> into first century Judaism. The crowd standing there heard it, the it being God's voice and said it was thunder. So this idea is of God's voice as thunder gets continued into the old Testament. We can talk about other aspects of, you know, where I think participatory theologies of revelation are found in the new Testament. I think there are some other places, but I think in terms of thunder, I think that's kind of a good place to stop and pause for the moment. But I think yeah. that blows my mind. When I came across that in John, I was like, boom, of course we're going to find it in first century Jewish literature. Um, right, right. So. And I mean, like, it's, so when I think about these things, right, when I think about 
thunder. When I think about God speaking as thunder, right? And 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 uh, the John passage I think is wonderful uh, in parallel even with like Mount Sinai, right? Where it's a it's a moment like like for the drama of the story, right? Um, especially if we're looking at it from like that angle too, for the drama of the story to have Jesus in this moment of pain and of anguish and all of that, right? Because and and then all of a sudden he's 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 praying this prayer. And I just picture the, the, that crack of thunder going across the sky. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And everyone knows, like everyone jumps back and is like, Whoa, what was that? That was huge. Right. And Jesus, who is one with the Father, right? He knows the response. He interprets the thunder. He knows what it says and what it's what it means, right? And I think like what what I find really beautiful about this is, and I'm even thinking about on Mount Sinai. I mean, like, I'm I'm an outdoors guy. I love to hike. Um I love being outside in desolate places, hiking, all that kind of stuff. And it reminds me of a time that I hiked in El Paso. I was working in El Paso and I woke up early one Saturday morning and decided I'm going to walk. I'm going to hike the highest peak in El Paso today. And I remember when I got to the top and I started walking back down, storm clouds started to form over the mountain. And I was terrified because here I am all by myself on this, on this big mountain in the middle of the desert overlooking the city of El Paso. And I'm like, am I going to get trapped in a thunderstorm at what, like 8,000 feet up or whatever it is, 6,000, 8,000 feet up. I don't remember how high the peak is, but I remember seeing these storm clouds just swirling above the mountain and like lightning starting to like, sizzle up there and then they get darker and darker and darker and then the thunder claps and you're in the desert like i mean i might i mean i might have been in an urban area because right at the base of the mountain is the city of el paso but like the thunder clapped and it was loud up there and so whenever i hear this like whenever we have this discussion about coal and thunder and god speaking in thunder it's like that resonates with me because i could see it right I, i've experienced i mean i didn't tie it to the voice of the voice of god right like i didn't interpret that as revelation except for the revelation of like hey bro you might want to get down off this mountain but like bro bro right, right. um but like i i'm picturing moses up there on this journey to get closer to god and bringing the people to get closer to god and god responds in a big way through his natural world. Right. And like, and I mean, I think there are moments, right. And, and this is where people might get uncomfortable. Um, it's like, there's moments where it's like a flower catches my attention 
And it's like, it might just be a flower and it might not catch anybody else's attention, but it's like, I know that it's God telling me something, right? Or like, I'll be distracted and all of a sudden I'll hear a, a cardinal sing in a tree outside my window. And it's like, it's, again, other people might not, might not affect anyone else. But in that moment, I know that when I experience this, it's God trying to tell me something. Okay, right there. Yeah. That is a, I know exactly where I want to go with this. Um, I want to tell a story about a butterfly. Yeah. And I want to tell a story about a jelly donut. Cool. Go for it. But first, I'm going to get a beer. Okay. I need a refill. Well, I'll keep, I'll keep talking uh, while he does this. No, so... I just think it's just this incredibly beautiful imagery. And again, I know this is going to make some people out there uncomfortable that like the notion that when God spoke to Moses, God may not have used words, so to speak. But I'm asking, I'm I'm just like asking you out there for a minute to like, let the creative juices flow for a second and picture a time when God caught you by attention or God caught your attention right through the natural world. And you knew that God had a message for you and you knew what God was saying to you. And I know Gabe's going to like, you know, he might take this wherever, but I'm just, I'm just saying just like open up the career creative side and, and let that flow and see where it takes you. Because I think this is just, super, super cool stuff. And it might not be certain enough. It might not be concrete enough. It might not be accurate enough for some folks, but for somebody like me, who is a creative person who interacts with God a lot through the natural world, I think this is just mind blowing, amazing stuff. So there's, there's my little bit. Sweet. So there's my little bit. What? Oh, I was just riffing and giving my, uh, my two cents on why people should open up their creative side a little bit. And even if they're kind of reluctant or like resistant to this notion of God speaking through thunder, um, to like, open up their creative side, remember times when, when like nature stopped them and God spoke to them through something in nature and just kind of let that entertain them for, or entertain that thought for a minute. So that's, that's, that's exactly, that's exactly what we're about to talk about. I'm going to talk about that because people might be hesitant. And the reason I think partially people might be hesitant is because a lot of people are not sacramental. Mm. I'm gonna let that sit in for a second and we'll 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 get to that in a second. First of all, I want to say I just got another beer. It's called North of the Helles. It's German. I can't H-E-L-L-E-S, whatever that is. The Munich Helles, 4.9%. So a little toning down the alcohol level a little bit. It's also from Ramble Vine here in Grand Junction. Oh I also wanted to briefly mention, sorry, I just burped beer. I also wanted to briefly mention that uh, the song that's going to be featured in this uh, 
episode is called Lover Boy. It's by Eliza, who is, I know her through. She walks out of uh, one of my favorite coffee shops here in Grand Junction, Kiln Coffee Shop. If you live in Grand Junction, go check them out. They're awesome. Uh, the people who work there are just awesome people in the coffee. It's great. But Eliza works there as a, one of the baristas. She also makes crepes. So she, I think she grew up in Indiana, but her parents are from France. So she grew up in America and in Indiana, but she would always travel back home, uh, back to, well, I, I don't know if she has her since. Anyway, she's American. She's grown up here, but she would always travel back to the summer for the summer to France. And so um, she's kind of this uh, like missionary kids like myself and others who grew up both in America and overseas are kind of like bicultural kids, right? We grew up in these two cultures. So she's kind of in the same situation. So she's also an artist. She sings. She's got this great song called Lover Boy, where she also sings in French. It's awesome. She makes crepes and she makes coffee. So her song is going to be featured on here. I hope you guys like it. Check it out. It's going to be on Spotify. Okay. Now getting back to Sacramento, I'll let you sit on that for a second. And, and I know this term sacramental might be off-putting to those who have an anti-Catholic sentiment. Let me just say that it's not just Catholics that are, have a sacramental view of the world. It's also Anglicans, Lutherans, um, Eastern Orthodox, basically most of the church. And here's another thing. If, you, if you're not comfortable with the word sacramental, and I totally get that when I was 19, I hated Catholics. I thought that they were, I thought that they were going to hell. Um, and so the word sacrament would have been a trigger for me. If that's a problem for you, think, replace that with incarnational. That problem, if that's problematic for you, then Christianity isn't your religion. <laughs> you need to go to something else. The whole, the whole religion's problematic for The whole religion's problematic. So, um, anyway, but I think those terms are interchangeable. So now we're going to get to the butterfly story and we're going to get to the jelly filled donut story. And, and this is okay. So starting with the, and, and the butterfly story would eventually lead me to the jelly filled donut along. So when we first moved to Tulsa, this would have been the summer of 2018. Uh, we'd moved from the town I went to college in. And uh, this was actually the summer I started seminary too. So we met August of 2018. So it was around this time we started mm -hmm. when we first got there, we started gathering with this house church and this girl that was there um, that was part of the house church, she started describing this experience she had. Um, I can't remember the full story, but I think there was something involved with her mom and she was having a really bad, a really hard season of life. And she really loves butterflies. And she remembers this butterfly and I'm probably butchering the story, but she remembers this butterfly um, suddenly appearing and landing and I say suddenly appearing, I don't mean like it was the holy, the butterfly was the Holy Spirit or anything like that. But the butterfly comes out and lands on like a car hood or something. And in that moment, she just, the butterfly is used by God to speak to her in a profound way. Now, it would take me a couple of years to gain the vocabulary and, and to think through, to be able to articulate what happened in that moment. And I'm going to come back to the butterfly story. Um, I'm, but, uh, we'll, we'll talk about the jelly filled donut and then I'll explain the, the, this'll be my way of explaining what, what happened there to articulate what exactly happened there. So jelly filled donuts are amazing, right? They're not good for us, but they're good. We, we, we love them and they're great I, as metaphors. So confession, yes. love the metaphor. Don't love jelly filled donuts. 
I'm I'm a I'm a custard guy if I do donuts. So you you I'm you stick you stick with jelly filled. It's a good metaphor. Just so letting I you know be, everybody does not love jelly filled donuts. Well, you're weird, man. It's it's okay. I still love you, but um, I used to be really fat. Did you know that, Adam? No, I didn't. Yeah, I used to weigh like 235 pounds. Was like three inches shorter than I am now when I was a teenager. And so I love jelly-filled donuts, you know, my, my, my fat gay self, you know, like, mmm, jelly-filled donuts. I used to, you know, the song Salt Shaker by being in twins, like, shake it like a salt chicken, shake it like a salt chicken. You know, that song I used to. And you, you tr- like truffle shuffled to it? I, I truffle shuffled to the, to the, you know, I shook that belly, shook it, you know, wow. to the, the Salt Shaker song. So um, anyway, love jelly-filled donuts. So um, what I'm about to talk about in this jelly-filled donut analogy is some of it's in my book and some of it has hints. Um, the theology of what I'm about to talk about is all in the book. Um, some of the language and some of the characters I'm going to talk about um, has is based off further research since I've written the book. Um, but so it's just added stuff. You get a little bit of extra here. That's why you listen to podcasts. You, you get what you don't from the book. So in the book, um, I talk about biblical inspiration. And I distinguish very clearly the difference between the word of God and biblical inspiration. The Bible being inspired does not mean it's God's word. And I go into that in the book. If, if that triggers you or whatever, go, go read the book. Um, basically, yeah. And you can, there's a whole two part on my podcast. We have a whole two part episode series talking about yes, this and games and on many other podcasts talking about this, but we talk about it in depth. I know that for sure. Cause it's two episodes exactly. long. So anyhow, so, Oh, suffice it to say wondering free that's my podcast so you guys can go listen to it so we don't have to have a whole hour-long conversation about that exactly we'll put it in the show notes but and some of this will overlap but specifically how i'm doing this i don't think it's going to overlap so put it in the show notes but anyway so biblical inspiration uh primarily comes from the passage in the new testament second timothy 3 16 so it says all scripture is god breathed or god inspired so the question is, oftentimes, you know, um, R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, any any fundamentalist, whether you're a scholar, a pastor, a missionary, a, a lay person, when they read that passage, when they read all scriptures God breathed, they hear, or, you know, I'm saying hear, they might be reading it, but they hear all scripture is God's word. Now, the problem with that, one, it doesn't actually say it's God's word. They're assuming that God breathed means God's words. And two, they're assuming that the text is clear. The text is anything but clear. And I'm going to explain here in just a second why that is. So when scholars want to know, uh, well, let's start here. All words, their meaning are determined by how they're used. So gubalin. Gubalin, I, I invented that word, right? And I did not know we we're going to come back to Gubalin. I'm this is awesome. Gubalin is a word I invented. This is going to be super relevant, I promise. So Gubalin is a word that I invented, and it has meaning based on how I use it, right? Um, and let's say this word takes off. Let's say people hear this episode like Gubalin is fucking awesome. Yeah, bro, Gubalin. And people start using it. Well, eventually the word's going to change. It's going to morph. And it's going to morph. It's gonna, The meaning of it's going to change based off its use, how people use it. So um, 
Uh, I'm trying to think of a cuss word. So like the B word, B-I-C-T-H, used to mean a female dog. Wait, wait, time out. Time out. Can you spell that again? B-I-C-T-H. Did I spell it wrong? Twice. No. B-I-T-C-H. There we go. There, there you go. There Got, we go. It. Boom. Time's a Got it. Got it. I right. can spell. Got it. I have a college degree. So, um, used to, that word used to mean a female dog. And then it became a derogatory term for women. Um, now we say, don't be a little bitch. When it used to just mean, look at that bitch over there, man. She like, she fine. That also sounds like I'm talking about a woman, but I'm talking about a dog. This is a really well-bred female dog that's good for uh, breeding. I so, don't know anybody who talks about dogs that way. <laughs> you should uh. come to Grand Junction. No, I'm totally joking. So you should come to Grand Junction. I'm totally joking that people like that talk like that here. But anyway, so the point is that the B word used to be used in one way and then people started using it a different way and that changes meaning. So scholars when they want to know what a word in the New Testament means, they look at it, is this word used anywhere else in, in the book that we're looking at? So if we're looking at the Gospel of Matthew, and we're looking at the word um, that uh, in Matthew 5, 17, it says, G, um, uh, Jesus says, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill it. The, the Greek word behind fulfill there is palero. So if, we're, if scholars are looking at the word palero, to, to determine what it means, they're going to look at its usage. So they're going to say, how's it being used in this passage, in this sentence right here? And also, how is it um, being used in the rest of the gospel? Is it used anywhere else in the gospel? And if so, how is it used? Because mean use, how it's used determines its meaning. And then they're going to say, is it used anywhere else in the New Testament? They're going to do the same thing. And then... They keep going. They say, is this used anywhere else in first century Jewish literature or even second century Jewish literature uh, or Christian literature? And then they're also going to look at the Greco-Roman, there are a lot of then. So then they're going to look at the Greco-Roman culture and literature and they're going to say, is this word used anywhere there? And with all of those different usages, they're going to determine its meaning, what it probably most likely means in the book of Matthew in this particular passage. So that's how you determine the meaning of a word in the New Testament or the Old Testament or any sort of literature at all, modern or ancient. And this is exactly why the word that we translate as God breathed or God, um, uh, uh, God inspired is, is not clear cut because it was invented, like I invented Google and it was invented by the same by the person that wrote second timothy whoever wrote second timothy came up with this word it does not exist before this letter was written so that means it's nowhere else in the new testament it's nowhere else in first century judaism it's nowhere else in the greco-roman literature of the time so how do we determine what it means we can't not based off of the new testament or the letter of Second Timothy itself, and not based off the first century Jewish literature or Greco-Roman literature at the time. The next possible time this word starts to get used is by the church fathers and mothers into the uh, second, third, and fourth centuries. Now, Clement, I think, actually uses this word, I think, in, in like 90, the end of the first century, but most people don't consider that part of the New Testament. Um, there he actually says interestingly enough he says that his own letter that he's writing 
is God inspired. So that's, we'll, we'll get to that in a second. So how do we determine what this word means? Well, one, we have to look, because it's not anywhere in the New Testament, or, and it's a, made up by this person, Second Timothy, um, and all words are made up. So I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Oh, yeah, literally. I'm sure someone out there would say, oh, word, that word is made up. That means it's not real. Then they just don't understand what words. Anyway, so that's why I had to specify that it doesn't matter that all words are made up. Anyway, so um, because it's nowhere else in the first century world, whether Greco Roman or Jewish, uh, we have to look to the second, third, and fourth century to the first Christians that were using this word. And the way they used it was much broader than we use it, particularly in fundamentalist Protestant circles today. So they used it to speak about books that are not included in the Protestant canon, uh, which is the notion of canon is problematic in and of itself because there was no council that got together and said, hey, these are the books. And plus each branch of the Christian faith, Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, and Protestant all disagree. They all have different numbers of their books. But so some of the books that ended up in the Orthodox quote unquote canon or the ortho, or the uh, Roman Catholic quote unquote canon um, are books that they included inspired in the early church, which is why canon or the Protestants need to read other books because those are scripture too. Um, but also um, they, they use the term inspired to talk about bishops. Bishops were inspired, creeds were inspired, monks were inspired. So all these, hey, Bert, hey, hey, damn Swiss reformed theologians of the 20th century and their dogmatics, damn it. <clears throat> That's funny because my dog, his name is Carl Bart. So he totally took me off on a train, man. Getting back to, I have ADHD. So once I get distracted, it's kind of hard to get back on track, you know, track as in the metaphor of a train. Where do we even get these metaphors? Anyway, let's go back. So, um, so the way they used it in the early church, this term God breathed or God inspired was much broader than what we mean today. So if God inspired means God's word, then we have to say that the early church, when they used this term, they thought creeds were God's word. They thought bishops were God's word. They thought the, a letter of Clement and other early Christian writings were God's word. Uh, they thought uh, monks and nuns were God's word. So, but if you look at those passages where they say these things are God inspired or God breathed, it, it, to say that God inspired is just synonymous with God's word doesn't make any sense in the context. They clearly aren't saying this bishop or this creed is God's word. So that leads us to the conclusion that, okay, well, they probably didn't think God inspired meant it's God's word. So when we look at second Timothy three sixteen, it says God inspired. The author probably doesn't mean God's word because the first Christians who use it don't use it that way. Right. Okay. So how do we understand second Timothy three sixteen then? Okay. There are two passages in the Bible that I think we need to look at uh, and understand it in, 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 in light of the first one is Genesis. So the author of second Timothy says all scripture is God breathed in Genesis. The creation of Adam happens in two parts, right? The first part is God forms Adam from the dust of the ground. Forms, or another word for that would be create. He creates or forms God, or uh, sorry, he creates or forms Adam from the dust of the ground. And then he breathes his life into Adam, creating a living being, right? Um, and so these are two separate distinct aspects that eventually comprise the creation of Adam. 
So Second Timothy doesn't say all scripture is God formed from the dust or all scripture is God created. It says all scripture is God breathed, that second part. Another thing you need to keep in mind is that in Genesis, it says God breathed God's life, right? God, God breathed God's life into Adam. Um, and who is the life of God? Well, John 14, 6 says, I, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I, I went to Sunday school. You I went the, to Sunday I, school. I know the answer to every. What is the answer? The answer to every question is Jesus. It's Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus is the life of God. Jesus is the life that's breathed by the spirit into Adam, creating a living human being. So that's one text we need to compare and understand 2 Timothy 3, 16 light up. The second one. And so keep, keep a hold of that. Uh, scripture is not God formed. It's God breathed. It's breathed in with the life of God, who is Christ. Now keep that all in mind. Hold on to that. Hold on to it. Now we go to uh, Matthew five seventeen. In Matthew five seventeen, Jesus says, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. The Greek word again behind fulfills palero. Palero can also be translated as to make full of or to fill. Here's where the jelly donut comes into play. So if we understand that text, uh, we translate palero as to fill rather than to fulfill, then it reads this way. All uh, Jesus says, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fill them, to fill them, which implies with himself. And we go back to Genesis. What was Adam filled with? What was he breathed into the life of God. The life of God is Christ. Jesus has come to fill the scriptures. He is life. So in 2 Timothy 3.16, when it says all scripture is God breathed, it means the spirit is breathing in the life of God, who is Christ. The spirit is filling the scriptures with Christ, who is the word of God, like a jelly donut. The scriptures are the, do the donut and Jesus is the jelly filling. This is a sacramental approach to scripture, sacramental meaning incarnational. So just as God incarnates into a human being, becoming a human being, God also incarnates into other things. Now, important distinction. The only time this God's incarnation into a human being as a human being is a unique event. So God doesn't become scripture when God incarnates through Christ into scripture. When God incarnates as a human being, God becomes a human being while retaining full godhood but anytime any other time god incarnates when jesus incarnates when the word of god incarnates it's it's spiritually right because god is spirit it's it's not god doesn't become that thing only in jesus does that happen but god spiritually incarnates into that thing so in scripture origin the church father talks about um the the, the letter um of scripture that is the literal interpretation is the the flesh uh, speaking in terms of a metaphor scripture is the flesh of scripture sorry scripture the literal interpretation of scripture is the flesh of christ the word of god who is filled into the scriptures he is the divinity inside incarnated sacrament into the scriptures he's present in the scriptures because he's filled into it like a jelly donut he is the spiritual meaning remember the early church up until the uh 1700s 1800s <clears throat> always believed they believed in a literal level literal interpretation of scripture but they always thought there was a deeper level there was a spiritual meaning underneath and origin talked about jesus 
incarnated in the scripture and, and using the analogy of the incarnation, the, the literal interpretation of scripture was the flesh and Christ as the word of God was the divinity within the scripture. Um, so that's another reason why it's important for us to believe that there's a spiritual sense of scripture because Jesus is the spiritual sense present in the scripture. So all that to say, Jesus is the jelly filled in the jelly filled donut. Okay. Now, all of that, take it, wrap it in your arms, and let's go back to the story of the butterfly. So what's going on there? And this gets to what you were talking about, walking in nature and hearing the thunder and so forth. What is going on with this, this girl that was in our house church um, had this butterfly experience. And she experienced God speaking to her through this butterfly. Well, I would say, in light of what we all just said, that the word of God, Jesus, incarnated through the Holy Spirit into that butterfly, used that butterfly as a vehicle for the word of God to be sacramentally or incarnationally brought to her. Mm -hmm. So, boom, there we go. So that so thunder, thunder. And, and, and no, I mean, that's what, that's what we were talking about. And we can, this is a great, like we spent a long time on this. I think it's awesome. We can close it out with that of like, I'm a like, close your eyes and picture this kind of guy. So like all of that right now, like seriously, if you're not driving, close your eyes and just, just picture now Jesus in the garden or Moses with the people on the mountain. Right. And just imagine that moment with the thunder and hold that closely to the story of the butterfly or a story of like, you know, I, I know a lot of different people who have lost loved ones. Right. And, and there's always a symbol that pops up, right? Like a lot of these people have like a symbol that repeatedly pops up that they, they see it and they're reminded of that loved one. And hold like that, if you have one of those, along with this picture of Moses on Sinai. Kind of like let go of the Sunday school Bible study version of Morgan Freeman, Charlton Heston, all that kind of stuff. And just, just hold those two images like side by side, those two events like side by side, those two symbols side by side things. And just, and this is where, we'll, I mean, we're going to continue down this train of like, this is like how God speaks to us and we interpret we keep talking about this, but just think about that as we flow into the next phase of this evening. Because, Gabe, what I don't want to do right now is jump right into essential kenosis. I want to tie essential kenosis into you being a bold, bold man and uh, critiquing Greg Boyd in your book. But before we move on to the next segment, enjoy this musical break.
for those of you who don't my idea I, I i know i know but like for i mean for those of you who don't know greg boyd i mean you should like he's an amazing rock star he's an amazing theological rock star he's an amazing pastor a theological rock star books podcasts all of it it just like he he's one of my favorites to listen to and when when gabe told me hey i'm gonna take on greg boyd here i was like you child you child um what have you doing but then i but but then i mean like being along with being along through this process like i engaged with the material that gabe was producing and i was like no this this is actually good like it's a it's an honest good critique of this in my opinion amazing modern day today's day and age living theologian and i want to talk about that but this is also where essential kenosis comes in um so i don't want to jump right into essential kenosis i want to i want to start with with greg boyd and you deciding even though it wasn't your idea you deciding you were going to critique greg boyd in 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 this and then let that critique flow into the essential kenosis piece we don't have to do like i mean this is your book release party you don't have to do a lecture yeah, it on it like we don't yeah. i don't actually even really want to do a lecture on essential kenosis like people can look it up like they can look they can go to they thomas can read J. the book they can read, give them they, everything in the book they can read your book they can pick up anything by thomas J. Ord. they can go to websites they can look up essential kenosis start by buying the book first though um <laughs> so we don't need to give like a, a, a primer on it uh but essential kenosis is key to your critique of greg boyd yeah so let's talk about that about what what it what is uh what it was like to critique a theologian you respect a lot yeah so yeah let me give a little bit of backstory um, because this is the podcast, you're getting the extra stuff here, right? That you don't get in the book. So first of all, like Adam said, we both really respect Greg Boyd. He's one of our favorite uh, pastors, theologians, off, uh, off, I almost said biblical authors, uh, one of our favorite authors. We love his stuff. He does great. His, uh, the two books I've read from him um, are probably some of the best, best books I've read, uh, written, read on the Bible. Um, and, uh, the first one is cross vision and I'm looking at my bookshelf right now. And the second one is inspired perfection. These are fantastic books, especially dealing with violence. Oh, excuse me, beer. Oh, it's burping. Oh, okay. I think I'm done. Um, cross vision is one of the best books I've read on old Testament violence and inspired in perfections. One of the best books I've uh, read on biblical inspiration, our views on biblical inspiration are fairly actually close, right? They're not super far apart. Um, I actually emailed him to try to get him to endorse the book. And when describing what my book was about, he even pointed out that our views sounded very similar. Um, and I'm actually going to be on, on a podcast in two, three days, uh, the Rethinking Faith podcast with Josh Patterson. And he knows Greg Boyd, apparently, and I've been in text communication with him. And he asked me, he said, what does Greg Boyd think of your criticisms of him or of his theology? And uh, I was like, I don't know. He hasn't responded to me yet. 
so he he was like hey do you want me to ask him what he thinks and i was like yeah sure man so we'll see maybe on monday in a couple days i'll figure out what greg boyd thinks about oh, all, all of a sudden music. like the screen goes black and it's like it's greg boyd's music <laughs> <laughs> yeah da, 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 da. <laughs> um i think he's a metalhead too so i think there'd be some metal involved um nice. but uh uh, so, and then a little bit more context. I originally had not even thought about engaging Greg Boyd when I was writing this book. I was riding in the car. I was driving as a chaperone, Thomas J. Ord in Oklahoma. I think I was actually in Oklahoma City. I remember the intersection we were at at the stoplight when, when Tom Ord was like, hey, and he's friends with Greg Boyd. He was like, yeah, I think you should critique uh, Greg Boyd on this in your book. And I was like, you, you mess with the bull, you get the horns, man, right? Greg Boyd is, is no uh, no average Joe. He has he's, he's a heavy PhD. hitter. He's a heavy hitter. He has his PhD from Princeton, right? He's not mm-hmm. he's not some dumb Joe off the street. I'm picking on Joes. You know, lots of Joes are smart. But so anyway, so that was kind of the some of the context, some of the background, what's going on recently, and also what inspired me to do this. Inspired. Haha. <laughs> Um, but to get to the meat of, uh, what you want to talk about. So Greg Boyd in his books, he talk, he has this view, uh, called accommodation theory and accommodation theory isn't new to him, right? Accommodation theory goes back to the early church. Um, and it's basically the idea that what we see in the old Testament is God accommodating to the biblical authors, to the biblical people. Um, when God said, when we read in, you know, the book of Joshua, that God, commands the israelites to wipe out all of the uh uh, the canaanites that's god accommodating in the sense that god didn't actually command uh the israelites to wipe out the to commit genocide against the canaanites that god actually uh that's what the israelites thought god had said and god's accommodating in that sense right so that's a, a very old idea and, and I will just say this, this is a bonus. Uh, most scholars think that uh, what became Israel were actually Canaanites. So right. they, they don't actually think there was a Canaanite genocide. They think that most, uh, there might've been a small group that came out of Egypt. Um, a, a one scholar, Friedman, uh, Richard Elliott Friedman thinks that it was the Levites that came out of Egypt. Um because Moses has an Egyptian name and so forth, but mm-hmm. the, the main group that became Israel were actually Canaanites. They're the indigenous people of the land. So that's that's free. Get that for free. Yeah, I mean, and, and it, I mean, it makes sense of like tribes and regions and not to go off on a tangent, but it really, that, that understanding of scholarship kind of, it helps explain the book of Judges, I think, more than anything. Yeah. But anyhow, yeah. go ahead. Anyway, that's a tangent. That's free tidbit. That's not even in the book. So you get that for free. Well, you'd get it for free anyway, because it's not in the book. Anyway, so um, so accommodation theory is not old, and, and Greg deals with this in his book. So the, the way that Greg kind of describes accommodation theory, though, is, is basically what I said, that, 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 that God, and I go into this in greater detail, so I hope I'm not butchering his view. I think I do a pretty good job in the book. But essentially, Greg said, and correct me if I'm wrong on any of this or if we need to add anything, Adam, but essentially, Greg says that when the Israelites right that god is commanding them to commit genocide 
that God is accommodating in those moments. God is allowing, important word, allowing them to think that he wants them to commit genocide. So that's that's a pretty great way, I think, in a lot of ways to solve the problem of violence in the Old Testament, that God commands genocide. Well, yeah, and really commanding genocide, but and, they think he is. And Boyd would, I mean, he, he puts it, I mean, he defines all of that much clearer. I mean, that's his work. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But, so, so it's, it's, a, it's not quite as just simple as like God allows it to happen. There's some nuance to yeah, that yeah, for sure for as sure. to like why God allows that to happen. But at the end of the day, it's still like a voluntary divine accommodation. Exactly. So, and again, go read his books. I, I also detail a little bit more in my book. Um, but at the end of the day, it, God is allowing the misunderstandings. And the example I give in the book to show the problem with this is that if my friend, and I have a very specific friend in mind, but has nothing like actually ever happened. I just, when I was thinking of this metaphor, he came to mind. But I have a friend who has a daughter, right? And if his, his daughter thinks my daddy wants me to go kill the cat, and he finds out about this, he knows that his daughter thinks that he, that he wants her to kill the cat as a good father my friend is going to say no you misunderstood i don't know where you got this idea from but actually i don't want you to kill the cat but if for some reason he knows that she thinks that he wants her to kill the cat and he doesn't correct her misunderstanding and she ends up killing the cat then he is morally culpable, morally responsible for the death of that cat. So in the same way, if according to uh, uh, Greg's, end of Greg's thinking, if God is allowing the Israelites to, uh, to misunderstand him, the implication is that he could have done otherwise, right? That he could have corrected the misunderstandings like my friend does with his daughter and the cat, but chooses not to for whatever reason. And in that, he ends up being morally culpable for the Israelites massacring multiple people, if that's a historical story, which we don't think it is. But if it's a historical story and they end up doing that, he's culpable for all those deaths because he could have um, corrected the misunderstandings, chose not to. So what I say is, I actually agree with the accommodation theory. I say, yes, God does accommodate. But I add the word (laughs) necessarily, right? Wait, I, I just had a funny thought. It's like, God didn't actually accommodate their view of committing genocide. God, God accommodating their hubris in writing that they committed genocide. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's another option. That would obviously make it easier. I, I mean, I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just saying, like if we're looking at the likely actual historical record, if, if most if there's a consent, like if there's a, if, and I'm, I'll just, I'll, I'll say it like broadly for folks who may hold on to the view as unlikely as it is that Joshua and crew went in there and wiped everyone out, even though they really didn't because the Canaanites are still in future stories. If though, like, like it's, I just think it's funny that like, if that didn't actually happen and they're just writing that it did because they want to have a rah-rah 
party about why they're the best and for other reasons that you know might not be so superfluous they were also colonized when they most likely when they wrote these stories so yeah and anyhow so. yes yeah um but that, that god like accommodated them is almost like yeah i know that fish wasn't actually quite that big uh but i'll i'll you know what i'm not gonna correct you i'm i'm just gonna i'll let you write it i'll let you write it yeah right exactly. anyhow but so anyhow. even even if that's a good point but even if that's the case even if they didn't actually historically didn't commit genocide because they're actually the canaanites um and that uh god accommodated their writing of that right um that would still god would still be culpable and here's the reason why because those stories are used by western powers to colonize the indigenous people of north america right, right? they came in and they said god said that the chosen people of god can come in and wipe out the canaanites well the chosen people not of god not even not even just north america i mean that's our context but yeah they also used that for ireland like yeah. i mean they yeah. used the same the same you know warring patterns throughout history to justify yeah. their wars and their colonization and all of that exactly and, and so I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because even if that's the case god still accommodates to not actual events but actually you know them writing that that's still problematic because god would be culpable for all the future travesties that we based off of those texts used to justify those actions right um and so i kind of add, i don't kind of i do i add to the accommodation the word necessary that god necessarily accommodates so you pull, you pulled an ord i pulled an ord i'm an oridian um and so uh tom would say that and i, I think tom agrees with me on this that god necessarily accommodates it's not that god chooses to accommodate god necessarily accommodates because this is part of who god is god freely gives freedom and so forth again we're not going to go into a central connection you got to buy the book or read one of tom's books and buy though but 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 the idea is that god necessarily accommodates that god can't choose otherwise and therefore god is not morally culpable when the israelites if it was historical which again that's most likely not an option um that when they commit genocide that god's not culpable for not stopping them to killing the kitty cat when he knew that that's what you know they thought he wanted them to do um or if, in the case of you know it's not historical but they wrote these stories in the case of these stories being used to justify genocide later on hundreds of years later mm -hmm. he's not culpable for that because he didn't accommodate he didn't let them write that they wrote that out of their own free will and god necessarily gives freedom to creatures and can't retract that freedom so he necessarily god necessarily accommodates yeah and Okay, give away a little bit for folks who really don't know. The simple, the simple part of it is, is that God is not controlling either the people or the world or the scripture that's being written or the, the words that become scripture, right? Like God is not controlling them because God cannot control them because God's nature is um self-giving others empowering love is that is that does that is that a good is that that's a that's a tom that's that's an ordian so. that's, that's like ordian to me. Yeah. that's a direct i think that's a direct ordian quote there i'm almost yeah. two beers in so you know that sounds good to me 
I, hey, by the end of tonight, I just, I just might get you to read Whitehead. Oh my god! Oh. <laughs> is that where is that where we're going? No, is that's this, a, no, is that's this an open theater it's intervention. Set, it's a setup. Um, it's a setup. Run! It's a trap. Uh, no, a no, trap. no, no, no. Um, I'm just, you know, sliding that I in th- there. But, but I think we've talked about the accommodation stuff and Greg Boyd. Yes. You know? Yeah. We, so we if we want, that. we can move on to the open theater stuff. No, um, I want to know. I want to know who, who, you know, next book. Next who got, book. Who you got your radar on? Oh, who, who am I going <laughs> to tackle next? Um, <laughs> Greg Boyd versus Gabriel Gordon in the MMA arena. I don't actually watch MMA, so I have no idea what that sounds like. But no, I mean, and and um, and I'll back it up. Like we're joking around about it, but get the book. Obviously, read it as somebody who like really deeply like respects and agrees with a lot of what Greg Boyd has to say. Um, I think that Gabe's critique is fair from an essential kenosis perspective. Yeah. Um, Obviously there's a distinction between a lot of open theism and kind of an Ordean essential kenosis view and Gabe's, in his own category. I'm not going to go there right now. I have um, my own box. Yeah, Gabe's in his own category there. But there's a there's a distinction there. And so from the essential kenosis perspective, I, I do think it's a it's a fair I think it's a fair critique. And I think that you handled it really well. Because I, I still remember when you called me that night. It was like lockdown in Washington when I lived out there and we were all stir crazy. And Gabe calls me and is like, yeah, uh, Tom suggested that I critique Greg Boyd. And I was like, what? 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 <laughs> I was like, uh, you sure you want to do that, man? <laughs> um, but no, I thought you handled it really, really well. And I, I think that would be, I'd, I'd be really interested to hear what, what, he, what he would say. Um, because yeah. I, I essentially think, though, it would be more or less, if you've ever heard him and Tom Ord on a podcast together, I imagine it would sound a whole lot like that. Yeah. Where that, their conversations go way over my head. Yeah. I mean, I, I would imagine it would sound a lot like that though, where it's just, it's two different perspectives, but they're very like, they're so close yet so far. Cause it's yeah. like just two different perspectives. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, and then, you know, you, you bring your, your own wrinkle into it, which is, which is fun. And I'm not, I'm not going to tell you that you need to go pick this one up, but, but you know, you're going to tell me, but I'm just going <laughs> to tell you, uh, you know, I'm, I'm fine. Hashtag bringing the pro- just, hashtag bringing the process party. Um, no, no. I, I mean, I am interested in that. And I think it, I think it works where, so yeah. Yeah. I mean, we can, we can, we can riff on it. Um, yeah, yeah. So I haven't talked about this much. No, and it's just an interesting point of conversation. Is is this my coming out moment? I'm coming out. I'm not actually an open theist. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I think That's so. Just- because like I just find it interesting, <clears throat> and I'd just be interested in hearing your perspective on it, just because I'm. 
I'm really interested in hearing how you understand like time and we'll say like if you believe in like an omega point or a like finale to history right and how that could come about without god controlling my my big question for you being any essential kenosis holding classical theist in many ways at least is how you come to terms with like if one if you believe there's like an end of history moment where you know god closes time so to speak and how that is possible without control and then also kind of like how you would hold a conception of time and not omnipotence because that's power related, but like an om, uh, omniscience that includes the future without yeah. it actually being set. Yeah. And I, I don't mean that even in deterministic ways. I would even mean that in like Wesleyan ways. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I'm curious about your thoughts on both of those. Yeah. Well, first of all, I'll say, um, this is my out of the, out of the closet moment. Um, so essential, so I'll say this. So essential kenosis, the, 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 the guy that the guy for essential kenosis is Thomas Jayward, who is both an evangelical, a process theologian and open theist. Right. Um, and I'm, none of those things i'm not an evangelical i'm not a process theologian i'm not an open theist um and i think that boggles i remember being in a conversation i was in a car ride with tom and i think it came up that i wasn't an open theist i think he kind of he was surprised by it, it kind of boggled his mind when he wrote his book um i think it, it might have been his first book where he proposed essential kenosis so i'm thinking like 2010 something like that he presented essential kenosis as an open theist uh theology and and i guess real quickly we'll define essential kenosis as the idea that god's very nature is uncontrolling love is self-giving and that god because god can't act outside of god's nature and god's nature is uncontrolling god love god can never be controlling and again i explain that much better in the book but that's the basic gist Whereas open theism says, you know, the future is not set. Um, God does, and therefore God only knows what's knowable. What's knowable is not the future since it's not set. So God doesn't know the future, so forth. It, it's much more complicated than that. But um, so, but I think Tom has since realized that you can affirm essential. And, you know, I haven't talked to him about this extensively, but the vibe I get is that he has since recognize that you can affirm essential kenosis and not be an open theist um and what i tried to do in the book in chapter two is i tried to connect some historical precedents to to some of the ideas underlying essential kenosis that it's not it didn't just come out of nowhere but that there mm -hmm. were historical you could trace it historically right that it developed from something um to to the the church fathers and in, in, you know the first couple centuries of the church and so so all that to say I'm not an open theist. I'm not a process theologian. I'm not an evangelical. Everything that most essential kenosis people are, or at least a couple of those things. Um, 
And I'll also say that I am not as well read in process theology, process theology just straight over my head. You know, um, I may sound smart in this book, but <clears throat> when it comes to process theology, it just goes straight over my head. So if you want to learn process theology, read the book that he's. Oh, I was out. just I was just making Whitehead stare at you. That's all. Uh, you need to lower his head. This isn't the recording, so I don't know if you guys can see this, but unless you're watching the recording, but Whitehead is kind of the father figure of uh, process theology. And well, not, uh, not the theology. I mean, he's the philosopher that it's, philosopher. That it's based upon. See, again, I don't know anything about this, but it always goes over my head. Trip Fuller, Thomas G. Ward, they talk about process theology. They know what they're talking about. But um, and then when it comes to, I don't think I've read anything on process theology. I've heard Tom and trip talk about it a little bit um open theism i've read a couple of books that are presenting open theist theology so i'm not super well read on open theism either so i wouldn't say you know i have a great understanding of open theism <clears throat> if you want to learn what open theism is tom just wrote a really accessible book on it and i think it's called introducing open and relational theologies it should be coming out in a couple months um, that's a really accessible way to learn about it if you want to. Greg Boyd talks about open theism a lot. There's a lot of great resources. The Center for Open and Relational Theology. So if you want to learn about open theism, um, those are great spots. Um, and I'm actually on the Center for Open and Relational Theology. I have a profile there, which, again, might make you think I'm an open theist, particularly because a lot of the endorsements I get are from open theists. But for whatever reason, I haven't joined the open theist boat. Um, so all that to say, I'm not an expert in open theism, so I'm not pretending to be. But when I read open theism, it doesn't make sense to me. It, it doesn't, like you, when you said, right, that it clicked for you when you, when you read open theism. It's never done that for me. And, and the little bit, I, the more I learn about it, the more it doesn't click for me, the more it actually makes me reaffirm classical theism. Um, so when we say classical theism... <clears throat> Uh, we should probably define some of these terms. Uh, there are actually a couple points that I think open theists would affirm, right? So like um, Tom in his new book about open and relational theologies talks about the uh, omnipresence of God. Well, I mean, omni is, omnipresence is is a key, especially on the relational exactly. side. Yeah. Like, so, so when we say, so open theists are known kind of quote unquote for rejecting classical theism, but they don't reject every aspect of it, right? Right. My, yeah. So, Correct. so omnipresence would be a classical theistic doctrine. The idea that God is everywhere present in everything. Right. And this is different from pan, pantheism that says that God is everything. This is saying God is everywhere. God is present in everything. It's different. Um, open theism firms that classical, that's a classical theist doctrine. Um, another classical theist doctrine would be um, the omnipotence of God. The idea that God is all powerful. Now, Tom, I think would say he denies that, uh, but I don't think he does. I think it depends on how you define, define open, or uh, sorry, omnipotence or God's all powerfulness. Um, some people would say, I deny that, but I would say, no, I don't. So in the, in the very beginning of the book, I talk about the problem of evil. That's like the first, the first couple pages of the book. And I talk about, the idea of God's omnipotence, that God is all powerful because I'm addressing the problem of evil. And so um, I define omnipotence as the ability for God to be God, 
So whatever God's nature is, if yeah. God can act like God to the fullest extent that God can do so, <clears throat> then God is all powerful. It's not a limit for God to be able. It's not, sorry. It's not a limit for God to be not able to be evil. And this isn't, this isn't like, you know, and I say this in the book, this isn't uh, something that new theologians came up with. Gregory Nisa in the fourth century said yeah. God can't act outside of God's nature. God can't be evil because that's outside of God. In the book of, in the New Testament says God can't lie. It says God can't uh, act. Uh, God, God is always faithful to us because God can't deny himself, right? So there's, so the, the early church affirms that there, whatever God's nature is, God can't act outside of that. Right. So I would affirm the classical doctrine of omnipotence. I would just say it, it, it means whatever that God is all powerful in the sense that God is able to be fully good and fully loving. It doesn't mean God can control because I think that's outside of God's nature. Um, yeah. And I think, I think a lot of open and relational because I, I mean, I, I really like how Tom puts it as open and relational because it, it really is yeah. very wide. Like, even as Gabe is like saying, I think like when he's saying like that, he thinks open theists like believe this, blah, 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 blah. Like open and relational is, is, is an enormous spectrum with a lot of different views. You can get Tom's book when it comes out. Yeah. Um, he does a really good job of like explaining this. There's a wide range of views. And when you're talking here about like it is like, it is really wide, right? I don't I think there yeah. are open and relational theologians that aren't even Trinitarians. Right, correct. So it's it's really a wide spectrum of yeah, people and, that fit and, that. Yeah. And like there, you know, there are solidly evangelical folks who are open yeah. theists. There are and then and then it's this wide, wide range. But yeah, omnipotence is is a tricky word because I would also affirm, like, I don't have a problem with the word omnipotence as long as it means God is the most powerful within God's nature, right? Yeah. It also depends on how we define power, right? If we define power as the ability to have coercion over, then I think we would both deny that. But if we would say God's power is defined by God's love as revealed on the cross, then that's different. I think why a lot of open relational folks would say they like reject omnipotence it's it's not necessarily because of the nuance that you can use to define it one it's probably because of the the commonly held notion of the word yeah so it's it's kind of it's kind of like you know why when i went through my david bentley hart ish universalist phase right where I would still not necessarily like using that word because of the connotation in today's society among yeah. Christians. People and so like pluralism. And yeah. on top of that, you have like Charles Hartshorn's big book, not big book, but like Charles Hartshorn, Charles Hartshorn's book, Omnipotence and Other Theological Mistakes. And so there's a, there's a trend there of rejecting omnipotence, but I would still hold to it as long as we're going by like, how you just described it yeah yeah so so i my feel my vibe there's omniscience is that, yeah is okay, anyhow, we'll, go ahead. we'll get that but my feel my vibe is that some 
open theists would reject that term because of the connotation, the baggage Correct. that comes along with it. Right, right, right. Um, and then some, so like if I just described how I described omnipotence to Tom, I don't think he had a problem with that. Right. So, and I think in his new book, he says they reject omnipotence, but it depends on how you define it, right? Right. Um, another, so I think it's omnipotence, uh, omnipotence, we've talked about that, uh, omniscience, and then impassibility, right? Are those yeah, like the main yeah. four classical views? So, so impassibility. So this is the only one historically in my life that I would say I've rejected, but I'm coming to a point where I would say, I don't think I've rejected it. I think I've rejected a particular notion of it. So when I heard impassibility, I heard that God has no emotions, that God doesn't feel, um, that God doesn't experience suffering and so forth. And um, up until recently, what that made me think is I, I did not make the distinction between um, God's feeling and our emotions. And what I mean by that is that um, I do think God feels right whatever that might look like um and then but i don't think that's necessarily a rejection of impassibility and here's why i would say because um i don't think god has emotions and the reason why i don't think god has emotions and i don't think most open theists would say this either i don't well, know for sure well, but i would get I guess I would say it's probably best to use rather than saying open theist using the term like open and relational. Yeah. Because like in general, open theists tend to be the closest to like somebody who just says like, I'm an open theist, right? Yeah. They tend to be a little bit closer to that classical view on other areas. So like, I don't know what an open theist like there's probably a huge spectrum on like what somebody would an open theist would say about impassibility. Yeah. Um, I would say that it's probably more the relational folks who would take folks who lean like head more heavily on that relational side of the spec, like not on the relational side of the spectrum, because it's not like one side or the other, but folks who are heavily relational probably have the most issue with impassibility. So, okay, so that's that's a good, dis let's, let's continue off that. I want to continue what I was saying about impossibility, but I want to mention this real quick, because this is a good point. The reason why I'm saying open theist, because I don't consider myself an open theist, but I actually do consider myself a relational theologian. Okay. Um, and so that's why I'm saying open theist. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Theology. Okay. Um, and so what, so that aside for a second, what I mean by impassibility is I don't think God has emotions in the way we do because we are physical creatures and our emotions are induced by chemicals, right? We have sadness, happiness, or whatever, but, but, and I'm not a biologist, but from what I understand, our emotions are created by chemicals because we are biological creatures. God is not a biological creature. God is a spirit. And so whatever God feels, whatever that's like for God is different I think in, in an enormous way from how we experience emotions because we're biological. God's not ours are chemically induced emotions. God is not. So I do think, you know, I've wrote an article a couple, uh, a year or two ago based off this idea that God suffers, um, <clears throat> that when that God is eternally sad. And I think I would affirm that. I just wouldn't say 
God has emotions in the same way we do, and that whatever God, whatever feelings or suffering or love or joy or whatever God has is eternal. It's God's emotions don't fluctuate, right? Or I say emotions, I don't think God has emotions in the way we do. But so that's kind of what I mean by impassibility. But I think that so I think I've for some of this stuff I still need to learn more and read more, but I think I affirm some sort of impassibility. So I have a question for you on that. Go ahead. Do you think it's out of the realm of possibility that God does have something akin to emotions? Now, here's my distinction. And this is what most, I would argue, most probably open and relational folks would say, me being in that camp. Um, But I'm also fairly new to that camp. But in my obsessive reading on the subject... Um, I would say that most open and relational theologians on that, in that, in that area would say like those who deny like impassibility in the, the classical kind of theist way. Um, I think they would say that God is capable of having these feelings, these emotions, whatever, but they are, but, but because, you know, God is God. Mm-hmm. they they don't like with a human if we have the emotion of sadness right mm-hmm. it can override our we'll call it like our god-given nature right yeah. that feeling of sadness can overpower us what they would what they would probably say is that like god has they that god at least potentially has feelings that are akin to ours in some way but they're not, but because God is God, they, he's not like, he doesn't get lost in the throes of passion. So like God doesn't get angry and send out lightning bolts, right? Or God doesn't get so sad that he decides to be depressed, that he's depressed for a week and just checks out like that, that doesn't happen. Um, But the question I wanted to throw at you though, is do you think it's out of the realm of possibility that rather than I'm like flipping your argument on its head and mm-hmm. saying, you know, you said that do like it. God, do, you said that like God doesn't have a body. God doesn't have chemicals. We do. Mm-hmm. We're also creation, right? Mm-hmm. We're made in the image of God. However, yeah. many people want to define that, try to explain it, all that kind of stuff. Do you think it's out of the realm of possibility that we have been created in such a way that the chemicals all of those things. And it, it turns out to be imperfect because creation's imperfect, right? Yeah. As good as it is, it's imperfect. So we are capable of being caught in the throes of passion, in the throes of emotion. But do you yeah. think it's possible that like we, we were created in such a way that those chemicals, those senses, all of those things that they allow us to have emotions and feelings. So rather than it being like, well, God doesn't have chemicals, so he can't have emotions. It's like God provided us with this body that has these chemicals, these receptors, so that we can feel something akin to what God feels. I think I'd be fine with that. Um, I think it would still be, different well it would be different because there's an apophatic sense when it comes to god in that 
of yeah, like, yeah, yeah. there's an apophatic sense in that God doesn't just feel what we feel like he does or he, she, God, right. That, that, like God feels what we feel individually in relation to us. So like, if we feel sad, God can empathize with that feeling. Right. Yeah. But, but if we feel sad because we were wronged, I think we talked about this before, like God doesn't only feel what we feel. God feels what led the person to wrong us. He feels what led them to wrong us. And he feels like that level of hurt or whatever. And it keeps tracing on and on through the web of relationality to a point that's utterly impossible for us to actually grasp. Yeah. So it's more of like, then you end up in into the realm of like apophaticism right where it's like yeah yeah. this is so big and mind-blowing and dark at some point that it's like we can't grasp it but god but god gets that paradox that that balance between god is both transcendent and imminent right Mm -hmm. um so no i i think what much of what you're saying if not all of it i don't think i have a problem with i think it makes sense to me um yeah again i i yeah everything you said i think makes sense um whatever you know god might have given us emotions to be something akin to what god is but then there again there's that transcendence and imminence so right and we're um, we're imperfect so we're yeah capable of having imbalances we're capable of being caught in the throes of passion because big letter s sin right yeah and this and this might be the main Thing that distinguishes me from an open theist is i would say god is all those things eternally mm-hmm. um and so i'm not yet convinced that god is not timeless um and i'm still again i'm still learning about open theism i've read a couple books by, ti- by timeless you mean outside of time well okay so when I think God's nature is timeless. I think God is also incarnational. So once God created creation, God incarnated into creation. Get out of here. He's pulling down. I don't know if you're listening to the podcast, he's pulling down his process and process uh, theology book. Um, Again, process theology goes way over my head, but, well, no, I mean, you were just what you were just describing. And I am no, I would still describe myself right now as more process friendly than like yeah. process process. Cause yeah, th- there's, yeah. there's so much to dive into there. It's insane. Yeah. You, like you got to have a PhD to even understand the stuff half the time. Yeah. Um, but what you're describing sounds very much like the, not dipole yeah maybe like dipolar is the way it's described where it's like god has a there's a there's a there's a sense there's a part of god that is like um essentially that god's dipolar two ends of the pole right that one it's end, where like in tom's book he says like the difference between god's eternal nature that's loving and then god's experiential moment yes moment. yes now though yeah. i'm actually really uncomfortable with that okay all right yeah i so need that's, to i need to think about it more and articulate why that's kind like, of what but that's kind of what you're just des- you're describing 
is it's that there's some, a that there's an yeah. incarnational aspect that is with that is that is kind of bound by time, place, culture, all those things. I wouldn't say it's bound. Well, not bound. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But but there's an incarnational aspect that is within embedded in yeah. time, place, culture. But there is a outside of time, timeless, all of that aspect of God as well. Yeah, but I would say that's all one. So like Maximus the Confessor. Well, yeah, yeah. Essences and energies. Yeah. I actually don't. I'm such a complicated person. I actually (laughs) don't. So I recently read my first. So I lean Eastern Orthodox in my theology, right? And I recently read a book, The Mystical Theology of the Eastern Church by Vladimir Lasky. Great book. Super hard to understand. It was really hard to understand. But he talks about the, the Eastern Orthodox idea of God's divine energies. And I'm not sure I'm on board. Um, I need to, I need to think about it more. I need to read about it more. Maybe it was just too complicated the way he described it. But so I don't know. I need to, a lot of this stuff I, I need to get into more, but I, so continue on what I was saying earlier. Um, so I would define God's omnipresence is also not just, place uh spatially but also in time so i would say god is also omnipresent not just in terms of uh, space but also time so god is present both in the past our past future present and who knows again i need to read more about time stuff but i don't i have no idea Mm. how we are experiencing time is time actually one thing and we just experiences experience it as past present and present or future or do, is it actually past, present, and future, and we experience it in accordance with reality? I don't know. But I think, given the latter, that I think that maybe that's what's going on, I think that God is present, past, present, and future. So the reason why I would say God knows the future isn't because creatures ha- um, <clears throat> are ordained by God, and therefore the future is set but that the future is already present in the future. It's already happened in the future. And it's been conditioned by free, it's been made by free creatures in the present moment. But we don't experience it as a, because we're, it's, it's the future to us. So to us, it doesn't exist yet. But in the future, to people that are living in the future, it does exist. It's so it's almost moment. like, okay, it's not, all right, all right, I'm not a physicist. I'm not a physicist trust, either. Trust, That's trust, part of the problem. Trust me, I'm not a physicist. Um, <laughs> but it almost sounds like what you're describing is, I'm not going to call it like multiverse, but like I'll, I'll call it something akin to that where it's like you, you kind of, again, forgive my words here, you kind of like shield against the, like your defense. It's it kind of, I mean, it sounds good like your defense against the about the 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 time however time works because this is the place where i draw a distinction too yeah. is i would say that regardless of whatever universe we are in like each universe is like creating a certain idea of time a certain sense of time right mm-hmm. and i and and that's kind of dependent upon the physics of that universe right um I would believe that like that might be how time exists. Like it's kind of like the notion that, you know, if you're in something that 
is if, if you're like higher up in elevation, technically you're moving faster or slower or whatever. Right. Um, Above my pay grade. Well, anyhow, I mean, it, it's my, what I would say is like, I would define time loosely yeah. in saying that like, not necessarily in terms of physics on the earth or physics in this universe of time, how we define time, but there's a sense of a continuity one way or another. Yeah. And however time is defined within that continuity, time is defined within that continuity, which, which leaves space for like wacky time around black holes, which leaves space for like time differentials between the center of the earth and the top of Mount Everest. Like yeah. it leaves space for that because there's, even though it's not defined in the same way at both of those locations by physics, it's still, in a sense, there's a continuity occurring. Yeah. Now, here's the, here's so, the- so what you're saying though, if I'm hearing you correctly, is that because God is able to incarnate and be present and he's on his omnipresence because God's, and I'm, I keep saying his, sorry, everyone out there. Um, <laughs> We don't because, think God has sex or gender. Correct. Um, because God is omnipresent, you would argue that includes time, time. Yeah. which means that in like not multiverse, but I'm, I'm kind of using that example of mm-hmm. like, if you took a flip book, right? Whether you flip that book forwards or backwards, Right. You would say, like, God's already on every page. Yeah. And God's in every page, really, is probably a better way to put it. Right? Um, Which, no matter which way that book flips, it's just that we have a, like, I'm still trying to figure out. We're on page 50, but God is on page 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 50, 60, 70. All at the same quote, unquote, quote, unquote. Quote time. unquote time. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's understanding me correctly. Yeah. Okay. I, I'm I just would also to, say I'm trying to yeah. I'm just trying to wrap my head around yeah. that idea. I, and so and so in that way I would say God knows the future because God's in the future. But even if God wasn't in the future, I'm not convinced that the future is unknowable for God. I don't have a good reason for that, but I haven't necessarily been convinced otherwise. Gotcha. I will say I will say this though the way we're talking about time. And I think most open theists talk about time because most of us are Western is the Western linear concept of time, past, present, future, that it's a line. It goes from past, present, future, but in the Eastern world, they don't have a linear understanding of time. They have a circular understanding of time. So who knows, you know, they could be right and we could be wrong. So who knows if we're even thinking about, the concept of time in and of itself correctly. Right. I mean, like they, they still get up depending on how they work and live. They still get up in the morning, eat breakfast, eat lunch, eat dinner, go to bed, wake up the next morning, eat lunch, eat dinner, go to bed. Yeah. But they could understand that totally different than I'm a Westerner. So the way I describe that and conceptually understand that could be totally different. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, regardless of conceptual understanding, like the earth is still spinning, right? <laughs> no, I, it's just, it's, 
He wasn't laughing at what he just said. He was laughing at something. I, I was laughing at Gabe. Um, no, and but I, I, I can respect where you're coming from with with your with your view. And I'm most of this is questions. It's not necessarily that yeah. I like we're spitting this out there like we know. Yeah. I don't. I don't know. I I was saying this a lot in a conversation we had not long ago that like I like having fun with this stuff, not because I hold all of these views like tightly, like it's like it's the gospel or something like that. Like it's because like I I have fun with these conversations because I hold all of this stuff we're talking about right now incredibly loosely like yeah like i i might say right now that like like i'm saying these things as if they're statements and facts but really they're all questions like i i hold all of these really i hold probably a a large percentage of my theology quite loosely i you know there's there's certain grounding points that we hold on to especially if if you're like Gabe and I and locate ourselves or yourself in the Christian tradition, right? Um, there's certain things you hold on to that I always have, but like a lot of the stuff we're talking about right, right now, it's all so speculative. Um, I have a good time talking about it. Not because like I know enough about it to even have debates. It's really just, I think it's a good time. I don't know. I'm attempting to fill time right now because Gabe disappeared. Okay. I pee so bad. Sorry. I I wasn't sure who was gonna end up editing this. So at some point in that, like I rambled for like two minutes, and then I was like, "Okay, Gabe disappeared." So this is just gonna be silence to edit out. Um. All right. Cool. So we've we spent a we spent a, a good chunk of time talking about essential kenosis, all that kind of stuff. We've been talking for a long time now. Uh, I think probably good to wrap it up. I think the last thing I do want to talk about though, is I want to, I want to, I want to talk about the writing process. Yeah. Like you talk, like you, you opened this, this episode, this party here, cracking the first drink, talking about how like, this is your first, like legit, legit, like real coherent front cover, like front cover to back cover, like, book right yeah and it's my first published book so therefore it's my first real book yeah exactly and so like let's talk about that like i I mean i've i've been here for the process from your like first draft of your introduction so i i want to hear from you like this Cause that, that, that thing you sent me, like when I was at a, a summer class in Portland, I remember I was at the hotel and we were talking about it. That was the original intro to this book, right? Yeah. Uh, which, which summer are you talking about? Uh, it's like, well, I know it wasn't your essay book. No, this was, this was your original, like, this is how you were going to start this one. Cause it was on participatory, participatory theories of revelation because you were talking about, like, you were talking about Heschel a lot. Mm, yeah, 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 that summer we read Heschel. Yeah, and then you went in different directions, added stuff, cut stuff. But, like, I remember that was the first, like, iteration yeah, yeah. of what this was going to become. So I just want to hear, like, your perspective of this this book writing process. And then, shoot, in, in yeah. editing, we can 
figure out throughout all this what stays yeah, yeah. and what goes in our two and a half three hour conversation here yeah i'll start with this one of the biggest insecurities of mine is that i think i'm stupid so for a long time and this is this is what i'm about to say super legitimate i'm not joking um for a long time growing up into high school and even into undergrad i questioned very legitimately legitimately if i was mentally retarded now some of the background for this is that i was abused by my mother i was taken out of school because of the trauma and everything that happened. I still, to this day, don't know how to write cursive. I have a fifth grade math education. Uh, when I was 15, I was supposed to be a sophomore in high school. My grandfather, I was living in Thailand. I was supposed to be put in international school. My grandfather, who's kind of a douchebag, went back on that promise. So I wasn't in school. When I got tested, I was supposed to be a sophomore in high school and I had a sixth grade reading level. So there's a lot of like reason why I have this as an insecurity. But I legitimately thought that maybe I was mentally retarded, literally, until my 20s, early 20s, probably. So basically, I had this never-ending loop. I just didn't have certainty. I didn't know. I finally got over um, the idea that I was mentally challenged. I don't know how, but um, and I've actually started questioning whether I'm on the spectrum now. I don't know. But my point is, I have a huge intellectual insecurity. And so that really undergirds a lot of, um, of the book. <clears throat> and it undergirds a lot of, so the writing process undergirds a lot of the reason I go to school. Part of the reason why I'm getting my master's, part of the reason why I want to get my PhD is to prove to myself I'm not stupid. There are other reasons, of course, but that's a lot of the reason. And part of the reason why I write is that reason to prove to myself I'm not stupid. Again, that's not the sole reason. That's one reason. There are lots of other reasons why I wrote the book. I'm passionate about these topics. It's the way to think and reflect on these things, so forth, um, and so forth. But uh, so all that being said, kind of as context for this, the writing process was brutal. It was brutal. Um, there were so many points where that insecurity came up to where, you know, I am just stupid. Um, this doesn't make sense. You know, I'm reading through the first draft or through the second draft, whatever. I'm just like, I'm stupid. This doesn't make any sense. This is not going to help people. Um, people are going to think I'm stupid. <clears throat> and so in that way, uh, and, and because, uh, because of that lack of those holes in my education, I also am really bad at grammar. Um, as Adam can attest to. And I, I had a second draft, a third draft, a fourth draft. And the fourth draft, I thought was, you know, that was going to be the last one. And then I hired a professional editor. <laughs> and the professional editor literally had thousands of corrections to make. And that was the fourth draft. Um, so, if, so for that reason, it was just brutal. The writing process was so brutal. <clears throat> On, on that inse insecurity of mine. Um, I also, talking about the writing process, I'm a really sporadic person. My Myers-Briggs, the ENTP, so I'm not an organized person. I'm not a disciplined person by nature. I don't do that thing where a lot of writers sit down from, you know, 
a, a set time every morning, whether, you know, eight to 10 is an example. And they write for those two hours every morning. I don't do that. It's super sporadic. Sometimes, you know, an idea will come into my head and I'll be like, I need to write this down now. Otherwise it's going to totally disappear. And that's what I do when moments of inspiration come, when something pops in my head, I just start, I have to write it in that moment. And, um, or when I'm doing something like homework and, or I'm reading a book and something pops into my head, I just start writing. Um, so my writing process is kind of sporadic. A lot of what, you know, the process behind the book was having these conversations, reading the books, thinking through these things, having conversations with you, Adam and Cameron and others in seminary and, and eventually writing these things down. Um, and a lot of this, I think I'll talk about this in the introduction, um, is that I explain that this is kind of a seven, eight year process for me of rethinking. Uh, so my theology was all, I would say growing up, what I was taught was to worship the Bible. And so a lot of the theology that I deconstructed was all centered and on this idea that everything was grounded on the Bible. And so, of course, all my ideas around the Bible had to be rethought, had to be re-articulated, had to be thrown out, tossed around and, and recycled and so forth. And so this book is kind of the culmination. And obviously, I'm still building on that. And I will probably for the rest of my life. But it was the culmination of seven or eight years of just um, rethinking what is the Bible and if it's not the word of God, which I quickly came to the understanding it wasn't the word of God, then why is it still useful to us? And uh, uh, yeah, so that's, I mean, those are tidbits to the writing process. I, I don't know if there's anything that you wanted to specifically ask or address, but. No, not, not really. I mean, I just wanted to like hear the story of writing it because I was on the, the end of the, you know, the calls, the conversations, the emails, the, the text messages of like snippets of stuff you were going to include. And like, I, I was kind of getting this information over time. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, as I was reading through and like helping you with like a couple of the drafts and stuff like that, I, I mean, it just became like clear and clear that this was going to be a good book. You know, like I remember when you first posed the idea and were dropping topics on me, I was kind of like, I don't know if you remember this conversation, but I, I remember having the conversation or at least thinking like, I don't know if I brought it up to you or not, where I was like, these are a lot of really good ideas. I just, I don't know how he's going to tie these things together. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Um, and, I, and I think we had a conversation about that of like, this is all so good, but like, where's the connecting point here? How is this all related? Like, where's yeah. the connecting point between the word of God, essential kenosis, participatory theories of revelation, right? Like, cause yeah, we, we yeah. spent a lot of time in seminary, like you and I talking about like those three topics, right? Yeah. And I remember just thinking like, where is it going to, like, where is the meeting point here? Because that's the book that's the original yeah. idea right yeah and not that it's like an idea that only you came up with you know you took all of these other sources yeah. and ideas and found their meeting point yeah and that's what amazed me when i started reading it where i was like 
man, all of these things that seemed like they're separated and disconnected, but really cool stuff. And it's like, you, you found that meeting point, you found that yeah. intersection and just went with it. And I, I mean, I, yeah, I was amazed. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's kind of how my mind works. Um, I think I tend to see disparate things that are disconnected and I see their connection points, how they're related. Um, and so in that sense, I'm very interdisciplinary. I don't like to be kind of rooted in, oh, oh, we're just talking about biblical studies or we're just talking about theology or we're just talking about church history or whatever. But all these things kind of come together for me in, in, in the way I conceptualize and think about things. And I remember. And that's how you know, we that's how we end up. Sorry, to interrupt. Like, that's how we uh, end up having a conversation about theoretical physics that neither of us understand exactly. in the middle of a drinking book party launch podcast about theology exactly and i do want to say this you know cameron and boss were there pretty much in all those conversations as well so i i think the so originally i was reading benjamin somner's book and we had you were in this class our second semester old testament uh that jewish rabbi came and he mm -hmm. talked about benjamin somner's book and at that point i think it was 100 pages in the book he's like i gotta finish this book and um, I actually called him and I talked to him and I was thinking at that point of writing a paper on essential kenosis, sorry, not on essential kenosis, but on participatory theories of revelation and kind of uh, addressing like Jesus and all of that. And then um, I started to think, no, maybe this actually is an implication of essential kenosis. So I started to see those connections and mm. to think that maybe what I'm looking at is writing a book that is exploring the implications of essential kenosis and this is what it is so i remember i think it was our i think it was our second semester so mm -hmm. the same semester uh, that rabbi came and talked to our class um tom came in, and spoke at our seminary and so i got together with him for coffee it might have actually been the first time i met him in person i got together so this would have been what spring of 2019 got together with him at the coffee shop well and good that we love to go in portland that's actually technically in tigard if you're ever in tigard oregon check out well and good coffee it's awesome <clears throat> i miss it anyway so we got together there and i i basically was telling him the idea for this book i said i want to explore the implications of essential kenosis for doctrine of biblical inspiration and he told me no one's written on this except you know one tiny article that was in one of the essay collections of uh un uncontrolling love of god and it it wasn't really extensive it wasn't really what i'm going for and anyway so we had that conversation and that's kind of like where i think i ended up deciding this was this was the direction mm. i was going in um and there was we ended up reading heschel i think that summer mm -hmm. abraham joshua heschel who's amazing you need to read him if you haven't and um, <clears throat> I ended up putting a lot of stuff from Heschel in the book, in, one, in the first draft. And I ended up cutting a lot of that stuff out. I think some of it was good, but it just like ended up not making any sense in connection with what we were doing. But um, so the writing process has been kind of up and down and sideways and left and right and all sorts of diagonally. Um, it's kind of gotten all over the place, but um, I think ultimately it was 
finding that place where all these disparate things seem to connect. Because when I first went to seminary, the reason why I first went to seminary was because I wanted to explore what does the doctrine of inspiration look like uh, when we look at historical criticism that humans wrote the Bible and when we look at the way early Christians read the Bible allegorically. Mm -hmm. How do those things connect? And I think, I don't know if this book is exactly answering that question, but I think those come together in this book so yeah at least partially yeah no that's awesome it's really cool like i don't know like get get in your head and heart here on the writing process and understanding like how you work because and then we can wrap it but like it just reminded me i i remember and this is another memory from seminary. I mean, it's all sentimental to me now. I just just graduated. It, it all it's all coming. It's all coming <laughs> back. It's all coming back to me. Yeah, um, Celine Dion. Uh, I thought of uh, um, the song by Tim McGraw and Nelly. Um, what is that song? Um, damn it, I can't remember the song. I don't remember. Tim, I know. Tim I think McGraw I, and Nelly. You know Nelly. I think rapper, I know. Yeah, I think Tim I know McGraw. what song you're talking about. I just don't remember yeah. it. Over and over and over. Oh, that's it. That's it. Yeah. So like, I'm I'm going through all these memories and like the things that stand out. And yes, there was our discussion on participatory revelation, and then there was also that like, we we were good, uh, like in the in the forums for Old Testament, we would like push each other with with questions, and it makes so much sense when you're talking about like different things and looking for the intersection point, because I remember I saved the conversation actually still like the forum post where you said, oh, and I don't remember what book I can't, I don't remember what, what book we were reading. I feel like it was one of the prophets where you were like, try to explain this through a framework of essential kenosis. Yeah. And I was like, and grant granted, Okay. This is the funny thing is like half the class is, is basically like having internal debates about like whether Jonah got swallowed by an actual fish. Uh, and, and this wasn't on Jonah, I don't think, but it's, it's, I'm just explaining but those types of things. I'm just explaining where, where, where this conversation came out of. It's like half the class is having conversations about whether or not Jonah got swallowed by an actual fish. And Gabe's asking me over here, like, Hey, here you go. Try this out for size. I want to see if you can figure this out. Try to, and, and I, I took the challenge and yeah, I may have or may not have stayed up until like three o'clock in the morning while in a hotel working in California to wrap my mind around what I was trying to do, but I did it because Gabe challenged me to do it, to find the intersection point there and to get it done. And I did, and it was cool. And I still have a conversation saved because that's a big memory of me from seminary mm. that I had from seminary. So I just want to say, I appreciate your mind. I appreciate this book that you wrote. I think it is, we talked about this on my podcast. And I'll add this again, as we head towards closing this thing out. I think this book will be helpful for many people. Mm. Um, and I know that's your intention, but most people see books that are in this kind of category and assume that it's going to be another book by a jaded ex-fundamentalist just tearing everything down and all of that. 
because there's a lot of there's a lot of books that do that right now. I'm not saying yeah, they're good or bad. Sure. I'm not saying they're good or bad, but it's a trendy thing to write about right now. It's like everybody all of a sudden discovered various forms of criticism out of nowhere, which is good because that comes with podcasts, that comes with education, that comes with blogs, that comes with all this stuff. And it's good to some degree. But what you do is you not only in a very respectful way kind of counter the popular narrative out there, the popular notion of inspiration, of the popular idea and understanding of God's word, right? You not only do that and provide an alternative view in a respectful way, you also provide folks who have done the deconstruction and are struggling to reconstruct. It's helpful for those people too, because, you know, I'm, I'm like I said, I mentioned this in when, when we talked about your book on my podcast, um, for those folks who can't walk into a church because they open up the Bible and say, hear from the word of the Lord, right. Yeah. Or hear from the word of God, or like, you know, the word of God, the word of the Lord. And you give those people in this a way to hear those words without it triggering the biblicism of a fundamentalist leaning American church um, to where they can hear a preacher or a pastor or a priest stand up there and say like, let's hear from the word of God today. And they'll throw out Bible verses and those folks can sit in their pews or their chairs or whatever. And like, be like, okay, spirit, what does Jesus have to say to me here? Mm. Through, through the scriptures. The jelly donut. The jelly donut. And I think that's huge. And I think that's why everyone out there should actually pick up this book. It's not just because Gabe's my buddy. It's not because he's my friend. It's not because like I'm over here like plugging a book for my friend. It's because like I legitimately think this is a good book. Um, I think it'd be helpful for a lot of people. And also because I want to hear what Greg Boyd has to say about it. <laughs> just kidding um I'll let you know if i hear anything from great boy but no and this has been awesome is there and and i mean your podcast so what else you want to add what do you want to do close this thing out it's getting late on my end it's a friday no, no, night it's getting late on my end too um two beers in man i'm a lightweight and these are big beers those I, those are know, large cans i don't know if we're gonna release this video but here's the video here's the camera these or here's the can the can see lots of beer these are big beers big cans um so two beers <laughs> in it's 10 42 my time almost midnight your time yeah um i really do hope I think you summed it up really well, Adam. And I appreciate, you know, the affirmation. I almost, I'm going to cry. Um, You're not drinking wine, Gabe. I'm not drinking wine. <laughs> don't whine. Um, we don't have any cheese to go with my wine. And, uh, but I think, I think, I do think you really summed it up well. And I appreciate that. And I, I'm glad that you got that out of the book. Um, it sounds like the, the idea that at the one hand, I'm taking something away, right? The mm -hmm. idea that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. Um, but 
trying to do so in a respectful way, which you and some of our other seminary friends had a large part to do because some of the earlier drafts were not as respectful. And you guys told me you're being a douchebag. Um, and so I, you know, as hard as I was to take, I needed to hear that. And now it's much more respectful, much more loving to our fundamentalist brothers and sisters. Um, so on the one hand, I'm criticizing that view, but it, on the other hand, you know, I'm giving something to someone. Um, I'm not just taking away something from fundamentalists, but I'm also the former fundamentalists that are coming from that background. I really am trying to give them because give them something. Because at the end of the day, for a lot of people that have gone through the deconstruction, they don't know what to do with the Bible. You know? Um, And I do think the Bible still can be a very powerful tool or instrument for God to work. And um, so I hope that people get that in the book. But other than that, you know, I hope the book's helpful, but I think that's a good place to wrap up. Well, everybody, it's late here. So good night.